Shouts. A podcast where, every week, communists sit down to shoot the shit about current events, history, political economy, and theory. This week, we sit down to discuss Socialist Humanism, an Epistle to the Philistines, by E.P. Thompson. Reading this, it became apparent to me pretty quickly why we read it. it. It's basically a response to Stalin, Stalinism. And, you know, a lot of his stuff in here is kind of in line with our thoughts in many respects. In some respects, there's a lot of areas to critique. But, you know, the overall arc of it, I think, you know, in terms of critiquing Stalin's, like, extremely crude forces of production determinism. It's yeah. Pretty, uh, yeah. I basically, I, I made everyone read this because... It was so in line with the discussion we had on Stalin and the whole discussion of Stalinism and also earlier discussions we've had about, you know, socialist morality and ethics. And it's actually funny. I saw E.P. Thompson as almost like a Marxist virtue ethicist. Yeah, I, I um, got that vibe as well. It, and that's, that's been something I've been like circling around trying to figure out how to like live with these principles at all because yeah. so much political expression is blocked that it has basically led me to virtue ethics. And so reading this like right now was, was perfect. <laughs> but yeah, E.P. Thompson's kind of his whole take on Marx is really looking at the real people making history and not just saying that, you know, he, he's very much rejects the structuralism was a heavy critic of all His he had a whole book, poverty of theory, like rejecting structuralism because he saw it as basically just these abstract impersonal structures making history rather than real living humans that through their relations to each other in the real world make these social relations that structure history. And so he's not going against economic determinism. He's going against what he calls economic, what is it, automatism. He says, as we shall see, Stalinism converted the concepts of reflection and the superstructure into mechanical operations in a semi-automatic model. So he's, he's very much going after, I guess, economic reductionism. Should we, should we talk a little bit about who E.P. Thompson was? Yeah, I'm getting ahead of ourselves here. Yeah, you're um, to the fun part. He's, <laughs> he's, you know, he was a very important historian in Britain. He was yeah. part of the Communist Party of Great Britain. And he was a true believing Stalinist and also a brilliant intellectual. There were a lot of really smart intellectuals in the British Communist Party. But in 1956, the Soviet Union invaded Hungary. And uh, I don't know what people's views on the Hungarian Revolution are in our audience. I'd say most of us, at least on the show, probably think it was fucked up and wrong what the Soviet Union did to the Hungarian yeah. people. I yeah. would say that just in the democratic principle of equality of peoples, that it was bad. It was wrong. It wasn't just a mistake. It was wrong. But And E.P. Thompson felt that way, too, and did not agree with the, uh, the Communist Party, who was loyal to Moscow's line on the Hungarian Revolution, 
And this led him to make a complete break with Stalinism here in 1957. And this is kind of his um, savage critique of Stalinism yeah. and breaking away with it after he sees how much the British Communist Party tails Moscow and just accepts the invasion of Hungary and accepts, the, you know, what's been done in the face. Because in Hungary... I don't think we should try to glamorize the movement, but what you did have was basically a faction of the Communist Party that was more, I guess you could say, idealistic. Maybe even, you know, probably with some social democratic even tendencies, basically wanted to reform Hungary in a more democratic, worker-managed way. Irma Nagy was one of their, uh, was like the leader of this. And so a movement from within the Communist Party for reform ends up basically leading a revolt that involves the creation of workers' councils. But eh, according to some accounts, I've actually read the accounts, there actually were pogroms and attempts to reinstate Catholic rule in the countryside. During the events, so, so some tankies use that, to, you know, as because they literally call people who justify the supporting of the Hungarian revolt tankies. They'll say that, you know, well, right, you know, crushing was, the Hungarian revolt. Yeah, yeah, with crushing tanks. it with tanks. You know, that, that's where the term comes from: was the Hungarian revolution being crushed by Soviet tanks? You know, the, the tankies were the people who wanted to send in the tanks. But the, in fact, is the main thrust of this movement wasn't anti-Semitism. That was you know, much of Hicks in the countryside. Really, it was an attempt of, of workers to, you know, make a more humane and worker-managed and democratic socialism that the Soviet Union crushed. And they did call NATO for help. and did call for the United States to help. And they didn't because, you know, that would have heated up the Cold War and been disastrous. But so there was, you know, a liberal element to this movement but even then i think that it was wrong to crush it you know the stalinists who say well they were liberals so they deserve to die i don't you know agree with that at all it's not really the liberal element that is probably the most compelling like you know stalinist talking point it is because they're you know it was nationalist and there was a high degree of anti-semitism in the population and yeah. the, like there's been a weird history with the Soviet Union where like kind of similar to the way like natural rights worked with the French Revolution and even Napoleon, like the Jews were this like barometer of, you know, like uh, <laughs> the white subaltern in Europe. You know what I mean? Like however good the Jews have it is is the barometer of universal progress. We can only see certain kinds of people. And at the bottom of these kinds of people, you know, are the Jews. Um, and so that, I don't know, like I, I would, I'm still like, a, I would still be afraid to visit like Hungary today. Like when you, when you look at the polling. Like, I mean, the thing Jews. is though, like, what they're, what they're kind of like this though, when you have a general breakdown in authority, when you go way out in the countryside, you're going to have reactionary people taking advantage right. of that breakdown. You're, you're going to have problems. Like you had that in the Russian Revolution, for example. Right. The main thrust of the movement in the urban area was, you know, based off basically a, a, a kind of a Titoist, like a kind of Yugoslavian style socialism, I guess you could say, was what they were aiming for. More kind of, yeah. you know, more free speech, yeah. more worker self management, 
you know, maybe more friendly with the West even. Yeah, by if, by no means I'm trying to slander, you know, the Hungarian Revolution, but the the point yeah. is uh and and what was interesting is that it was a sort of like council-based affair. And um this is something that excited Panic Cook and like those in that tendency. Like Yeah, the Le- um Sky and CLR James, for example, were very inspired by the workers' councils of Hungary. And they also would fall into this category of what E.P. Thompson would call socialist humanism. Yeah. Yeah. Well, didn't they found like some organization that was, I, I think, weren't they like Marxist humanists? Yeah. Like, Marxist or... humanists. Yeah. Yeah. The Johnson yeah. Forest tendency is how they like start out after their two pseudonyms. And then um, eventually, I think, I think it's Raya that founds the, the Danioskaya that founds the Marxist humanist organizations proper. I could be wrong. Yeah, but um, yeah, her, anyway, her, her, her EP flavor Thompson... of it was a little more like mystical humanism. But yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah, but humanism in a lot of these like like a myst- the... mystical Hegelian humanism. Right, right. In a lot of these debates, Hegelianism is is what people mean by humanism. That's like something yeah. that I think is kind of important to pick up on. And uh, uh, one yeah, of the he doesn't reasons... really mention Hegel no, much no, but one of the this but he does mention the causal power of ideas and dialectical interaction, but and it... that's Hegelian, right? So that's like the Hegelian he... thing that the Soviet Union is really has a stake in not bringing out of Marx, like because yeah. Marx does still like have a f- more or less like a kind of Hegelian view of culture. Like just you know, quote flipped on its head, quote, like he and he has a different axes of unity, which are classes rather than nations. But he, you know, he's adapted a lot of that model, inclu- including how, like co- how like the wispiness of consciousness that this distinguishes him from you know analytical f- like types. Let's say, yeah, E. P. Thompson, he's he's very much interested in the way ideas play a role in history. And one of his classic historical works is um, The Moral Economy of the English Crowd. Or I, I think that's what it is. I, a riot, maybe. But he talks about how in bread riots, for example, in the early period of class struggle in England, there was this kind of moral economy where people had certain ideas and virtues on how customs should flow into everyday life. And so, you know, therefore, if you had bread and, you know, people didn't have bread and were starving, there was something morally wrong with that. And so there was a custom broken in the moral economy because, for example, maybe they would appeal to the fact that, you know, the, 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 the store owner was a member of the community and therefore by like not selling bread at a fair price was betraying the norms of the community. And so Thompson develops this idea of a moral economy that's actually very useful in my opinion for looking at actual class struggles because often socialists kind of have this very mechanical idea of how class struggles are started. They see it basically as a result of a direct response to economic misery in order to basically almost like this Pavlovian reaction to economic um, circumstances that are bad. Whereas really 
when workers revolt, it's usually because something that the collective sees as unjust. It's like a, there's been a breach with what what is deemed to be just and moral and right. And well, it's a combination of that, and it's also they have an idea that it can be different, you know, because well, people people yeah. are extremely adaptable and can adjust themselves to any kind of like a miseration, pretty much. But if right. they don't think that there's a possibility of changing it somehow, then they'll just kind of adapt. Yeah, there needs to be a plausible yeah. mechanism for like you know doing it, even if it's like just something that relies on mass action and people making an altruistic choice. But those things are possible. Yeah. Like you know, when you look at a game theory model, it's pretty depressing because you realize like most of the time, why you know like what this would mean, how people would act. But it's important to realize in history, like well, and- sometimes people even in those circumstances do take the the altruistic path like and the, or the long-term self-interested path <laughs> yeah exactly and ep thompson is kind of trying to refute this you know game theory like conception of human nature with the idea of the moral economy you know trying to explain that you have to you can't understand how people will react to circumstances without understanding their ideas their customs their culture you know the behaviors that have been embedded in their everyday life and so e.p thompson is he's very influential in history you're always going to read something by him his book on william morris his book the making of the english working class his essays you know you're always they're very extremely influential to even to this day on like structuralist or cultural historians yeah making the english working class like was popular even among like the post-left like marxist people like, yeah, exactly. Like he's considered a brilliant historian, even by non-Marxists who otherwise don't like Marxism, just because he's so good at bringing things to life. You know, and, like the critique from Tomas comes to mind as like the, there's a sort of like a romantic optimism that Thompson has about the working class. That's in, you know, kind of absolving the working class of of being involved with Stalinism, saying that Stalinism didn't corrupt the workers. You know, it only really corrupted the bureaucracy. Yeah, he, he does like, say that. He does say that Stalin... Well, let's talk about... Um, I actually chose some quotes out. Yeah. And there was one where he named, like, the three oh, biggest right. problems of Stalinism. And I... Let me see. He says, The ideology of Stalinism, then, has three distinctive features. Anti-intellectualism, moral nihilism and the denial of the creative agency of human labor, and thus of the value of the individual as an agent in society. So, you know, first you have anti-intellectualism, and he, he talks about how there were precedents for that, for example, in French syndicalism, in the American labor movement, and there's this, this, there's this anti-intellectual kind of this bent to Stalinism where all middle-class intellectuals are suspect because their ideas are, you know, automatically a reflection of their class background as soon as they become suspect. Then there's this moral nihilism where, you know, he talks about the idea of class morality, and that's something I'd like to get into because there's actually a really cool Engels quote that he brings up. And, And then this kind of devaluing of the creative agency of human labor You know, he talks about how Stalin kind of sees not labor developing the productive forces, but the productive forces almost like just guiding society into its correct path. And people just have to like 
follow the correct path set by the productive forces and just well, you know in the in, in the individual the value of individual agency these are you know the three big problems of stalinism the anti-intellectual thing is interesting because he traces each traces that back as you said like deeper into the workers movement itself and he, he attributes that to a few different things one of them is that the bourgeoisie has greater and petty bourgeoisie has greater access to the I guess what you could call like the intellectual institutions of capitalist society. And thus there's going to be like a certain degree of bourgeois bent to what's produced in those institutions. And thus yeah. you know, Marxists are going to be Marxists, Marxists or even, you know, any sort of anti-capitalist or you know, anti-establishment voices are going to be perpetually critiquing those institutions. And so there is very easily a risk of sort of throwing the baby out with the bathwater and dismissing, you know, the findings of said institutions as just, you know, bourgeois decadence or or whatever. Yeah, this is something that I'm dealing with when reading. Uh, I've been like reading, you know, reclaiming Marx's capital. I've been reading the Andrew Kleiman book where he's going through like the history of Marxist economics and being like, this person's wrong, that person's wrong, this person's wrong, and it's it. There's a really easy answer for why they're, you know what what made them make their theoretical decisions right oh this is ideology but um what thompson gets at which is something i really like is um you know ideology is actually sort of the enemy of marxism <laughs> like we shouldn't be cultivating ideology like really what we want is like the universal like kind of perspective of, of what's out there is like, that really, I mean, is that really true though? Because, I mean, isn't kind of ideology just like a function of having a view of the world? Aren't you going to have an ideology that, pretty that, much no matter what? That's like the way that people read Marx. But, you know, I think at least in the early, in the earlier works, like ideology means bullshit. It's always interchangeable with functional bullshit. This serves some someone. And I want to like, maybe say that like what E.P. Thompson was calling false throughout the essay, I think it's important to distinguish. Ideology, I don't think has to be false, just has to be useful, right? Mm -hmm. um, and he doesn't lose that part of analysis, right? He's still aware that perspectives influence things. Like for instance, with morality, he talks about the, the dominant morality either being by the you know the dominating class or the a rising new class that imposes its morality on society and that has consequences um so i don't think he like loses that but at the end of the day he is trying to get at something else besides just what's good for who just beyond the instrumental pragmatism yeah um, he says that there is he, he he does mock the idea that morality what is good is what is interests of the proletariat with nothing else taken into consideration. But I think what he, what he kind of says is that you can't look at the interests of the proletariat and the interests of humanity in general as being two separate things because that's what the proletariat is ultimately fighting for is the emancipation of all humanity. And so that's kind of my would be my response to Thompson over there. Yeah. But um, at the same time, like, there's a really good quote by Engels about morality that he brings up that I thought was illuminating. He says, as society has hitherto moved in class antagonisms, 
Morality was always a class morality. It is either justified of a domination in the interests of the ruling class, or as soon as the oppressed class has become powerful enough, it has represented the revolt against his domination and the future interests of the oppressed. That in this process, there has been on the whole progress in morality, as in all other branches of the human knowledge, cannot be doubted. But we have not yet passed beyond class morality. A really human morality, which transcends class antagonisms and their legacies and thought, become possible only at a stage in society which not only has overcome class contradictions, but forgotten them in practical life. So he does say that there is a potential for a truly human morality, but he says that it can't be realized until we realize communism yeah and yeah i don't think angles would, also i don't think angles a, would say that like the universal morality is the proletarian morality you know yeah, what he's, i mean he, he understands that they're two separate things i guess but he still sees them as you know the, he still sees the he still sees the future interests of the oppressed as a part of the morality of the proletarian so i think there is I think with Thompson, the way he deals with his problem is basically the way virtue ethicists deal with it. And that he says, basically, we know what's moral and what's right only through the concrete living experience of, you, you know, the actual situation, essentially. I mean, I don't by... know. That seems kind of like hand-waving the problem away to, to me a little bit. And I don't know. I guess I kind of also question the extent that, like, moral nihilism is an accurate descriptor. Because it seems to me, like... Oh, Stalinism, yes. And there are Marxists who try to make, like, Bordigas, for example, also try to make Marx into a moral nihilist. But... I mean, what is what is the claim of like this hyper forces of production ter determinism? Like broadly speaking, it's basically correct. If you can develop the forces of production enough, you basically eliminate the need for human labor, right? And yeah, but the devil's in the details. Like the thing that Thompson focuses on that I think is important is that Stalin isn't saying that he's saying that there's a, just a tendency for the productive forces to develop, and when he says that, he explicitly make sure that we all understand that he doesn't mean that this is what this is an emergent effect of people making rational decisions you know and and choices to build the forces of production he believes the cunning of history builds the forces of production behind our backs okay yeah this is just this is why, the needs of these impersonal cunning of histories this is why nobody could ever take me seriously when I was trying to defend some of, you know, G.A. Cohen's writings and where he makes a claim that sounds like this. He's like, well, you know, there's a, there's a tendency for the forces of production to develop. Like I, he, he thought, so yeah. for, he thought so for like every society, which I think might be wrong, but as a worldwide tendency, I think that holds as an emergent thing, but it's because people decide like a lot of the Brenner thesis, right? But, people decide to build the forces of production like that's a thing people are going to do and but not for the reasons that like marxism considers the development of the forces of the production good right they're doing it for like different like typically like self-interested reasons or yeah. for ideological reasons that have so there is still a cunning of history component to it right there. right but but stalin's still doing a misreading of of what that cunning of history is uh-huh i'm not, I'm not saying is... he, i'm not saying he's not but no, 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 that, that, I, yeah, I don't think you're point, disagreeing. The point, the point I'm trying to make here 
is that it's almost less moral nihilism and, and more the ends that justif justify the means. Like, what if, what if it, what if Stalinism, let's say hypothetically, had actually worked, and they did actually like build like a socialist utopia with like fully automated luxury communism? Could we then retroactively morally justify his political decisions? That's what Hobswam thought. I'm not sure I'm pronouncing his name right, but Eric uh, Hobsbawm. I mean, yeah, but Hobsbawm, yeah. despite being a British communist historian, didn't follow the same political road as Thompson. But I think really what Thompson is getting at with his aspect of the productive forces is that for Marx, the productive forces was more than just how much steel your country could produce in one year. It was basically humans interfacing with nature and his ability to create new um in, in in to develop new conditions of existence and to expand its potential essentially and so thompson kind of sees this idea of in of an elite bureaucracy enforcing these commands of industrial development on a passive proletariat to be a betrayal of the true you know socialist vision of a rational community determined production of you know the basic needs and forces of production of society and he thinks that part of the problem is that stalin basically removes the most important force of production which is the proletariat I, like a lot of right-wingers will say this about marxism but they'll say that like marxism reduces humans just to like economic like units and stalinism almost does that and it's but because it arises out of the ideology of that state yeah right. That was like supposed to be the critique of capital. And, you know, when people joke that Stalin read capital like a textbook, you know, for how to build some something awful. <laughs> that's what they mean. Yeah. And that's not what capital is the point of capital is either. I think the point of capital is really a lot. It's not a recipe book for communism. And I mean, I, I do. I do agree that there's like some hideous like atrocities, you know, that Stalin is definitely responsible for. What? You're not a tanky, Jake? Not not yet, not yet. I have, I have to read some Ahosha stuff first, but I think you know I'm I'm pretty right. sure I'm not. Not um, quite Galaxy Brain yet. Not quite. But I mean, I guess whole... I'm a soft tanky, but I don't know. Soviet What the fuck does that mean? I mean, I'm just joking around, but people have uh, called us tankies before. Well, that's because they don't understand what a tanky is, and I'm even so, you I'm are so a tanky. Tanky is anyone who doesn't support Medicare for all. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you, you know tanky, what? Like for these people, anyone who doesn't like want to go knock on doors in Brooklyn. <laughs> no, like seriously, this is a side issue, but just a side rant. Like, tanky has become meaningless. Tanky used to mean someone, the person E.P. Thompson is describing. You know, he talks right. about what Stalinists are like in here. Someone who supported right. sending in the tanks on Hungary in 1956. But now, a tanky is anyone who thinks that socialists need to take state power and have like organization and authority no 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 or, let's be precise let's be precise no no anarchists actually use the word tanky i'm in that sure sense. they do any state socialist is a tanky and uh, its popular sure usage has really been degraded to that sense well like, so let, let's who... spend let's spend a little more time on the little subgroups here that would be tankies okay so we have anti-revisionist stalinists some of which yeah would that those some, would be actual tankies. some of which would become maoist we also have the slice of people that stayed orthodox, right? Like to the CP that was like, okay, comrade yeah. Khrushchev, the, our, the our, hero, our hero was kind of awful sort of, but we're not gonna change the system that much. All right, sounds good. 
you know, those people <laughs> also kind of count. Like the people that didn't have the shift in moral conscience that was signified by the oh, crushing yeah. of the I, I'm Hungarian revolution after the secret speech. No, I just want to like draw that out a little bit because I'm I'm not letting go of this development of, of the word tanky just because people that just are, you know, politically ridiculous can't wrap their minds around this or are just using it as a term of abuse. Because I think I think See, there's an important yeah. kind of zealotry and a specific high point of communist zealotry. You're going yeah. to send in Soviet tanks to crush one of its satellite republics councils. Yeah, we're yeah, taking it's, it, it's tanky. We're taking it back. Swampside 2018. <laughs> let's go. Yeah, but even like the Trotskyists who were super Soviet defensists that like, even opposed Hungary in 1956. Like, right? They realized that you know this was just wrong. It wasn't just a mistake. It was actually like a sign that there was something deeply wrong with the Soviet Union, whether it was state capitalist, bureaucratic collectivist, to form the worker state, whatever you want to call it. But there is basically simply nationalizing property and ending private accumulation of wealth does not end all forms of oppression and exploitation. Yeah. You got to get and... some corn in there. <laughs> you got to grow enough corn first. <laughs> Well, what, but that's one of the big points I think Thompson is making, too. He, he never actually says that the Soviet Union isn't socialist. He just says that it's no, kind of socialism. He says it is, bad. actually. It's kind of shit. Yeah, yeah, I guess it's like bureaucratic socialism. Like, But he's saying, no, we have to actually own this and understand that this came out of the workers' movement. Like Stalinism and these tendencies come out of these anti-intellectual trends in the workers' movement. It comes out of these bureaucratic trends in the workers' movement. And there is something about Stalinism that does actually make people follow it. And it does, it is a real part of the workers movement. And we can't just act like it's something that yeah, has that's no a, relation that's, to us. That's a very like strong point. Cause you know, you all the time you try and see people like tie Stalin back to the two big beards or even to the workers movement generally. And very few of those things, even as left critiques, I find to be fairly convincing. But I think the points he makes here, particularly about like anti-intellectualism and a couple of the things in the workers' movement, I think are pretty much spot on. And I think it's interesting too that just like a couple of weeks ago, we did like a bonus episode where we spent like half of it like right. shitting on. I was just the product, thinking this. Yeah, the product of uh, contemporary uh, bourgeois academia. Yeah, yeah. He says an important thing that you know Stalinism didn't invent any of this. It's not unique to Stalinism. All these things have a history in the left. Stalinism represents a high point <laughs> of um, of the systematization of these non-errors. You know, these like malignant tendencies in the left. And post-structuralism definitely evinces all three of these in spades. Well, the thing is, is that uh. Thompson says that in war, there's a certain type of militant partisanship that you need to have and that it will lead to some ugly things no matter what. But what he says is that we can't make this culture into an entire culture of life that all of society should live by. Because when you do that, you just basically create barracks communism. I mean, the and thing is, though, like for Stalin, you know, the Soviet Union was perpetually under siege by... By the imperial yeah. west and that's so and that's the perfect like counter example you could say to ep thompson is basically saying listen like you're right about all these things but there's no other option because all these states are under imperialist siege and there isn't a better alternative that exists right now but uh, and before... ep thompson would still say well 
it's it's you know even then it's still like bad and it's a problem that we need to work through well there is one thing that that did kind of annoy me which in this piece which was his art boosting was it the art part like well, art, no. artists are like the real proletarian scientists <laughs> i mean the actually it was more like the it gets really english at one point where he's like you know what here in england like people <laughs> people like to shit on yeah, the, the english workers movement but you know what we do things right around here you know we uh we're rising like a slow tide and at any point like the english working class we could just overthrow the bourgeoisie here you know like we could just do it anytime <laughs> we want yeah and you know, it just has that kind of like yeah, smug English. I don't know. You know, you know what I'm talking. But he's I'm still, still counters it in this like romantic workerism, where he's kind of like the common English worker understands Stalinism better than the uh, average like party chief in the CP. Well, yeah. <laughs> honest, honestly, like we are dealing with post-war Britain and nationalist as it was, Lasallian as it was. These people elected not to take Winston Churchill, war hero, we're going to fight them on the beaches, you know, that guy. Like, they're like, thank you very much. We're going to go with Atlee's British socialism. That's what we want to do. So, I mean, yeah, they, they nationalized 50% of industry. <laughs> like, there, there, there was a reason that Thompson is coming at it with this confidence. There, there, you know, this is before that kind of project well, I'm not. I'm not sure. Actually, I'm not sure how out of touch he is, but he seems like a pretty sharp guy. So I'm he's give... not. I don't think he was out of touch because he actually wasn't in the Communist Party and did have to like <laughs> give lectures to ordinary workers and stuff. I'm not kidding. Yeah, the, that that whole English like kind yeah. of like oh, you know, in England we're pragmatic, unlike everywhere else, and so we kind of have a different way of looking at this stuff than oh, everyone that, else. Yeah, oh, oh. To finish my point, I was just saying it begins with him kind of like. Um, objecting to having like a uh, English-based parochial attitude, but then he has, later on says stuff about you know the English being ultra pragmatic and having it right in their workers' movement. So he, he talks about the most striking thing about the British labor movement is that it cannot be said to have either a false consciousness or a true one. It has a hodgepodge of capitalist ideas, humanitarian aspirations, and working class attitudes. And then he goes on like right, and it, but later he goes um. This pragmatism, which, in a wry way, Ingalls admired, has served the British people a great deal better than most Marxists have been prepared to admit. Pragmatism, combined with para, yeah, parochialism, I can't pronounce that shit, have, have served it well, at least well in international affairs. Far, far more often than not, they served the clo uh, colonial peoples very badly indeed. So he does admit, you know, like the role of imperialism here. Was, in was England ever super active in the Third International? I don't think they ever were. Well, no, they were definitely in the third international. No, no, they were like, but but their their CP was like nothing. Like the Labour Party, like yeah, they had a, their, their CP was mostly intellectuals rather than like a man. Most workers were in labor, and so their CP had like a lot of intellectuals and stuff in it. Uh, okay. But they were definitely, and there was like a general huge general strike in 1926. Right, right. Um, but yeah, it, I mean, it does it does come across as kind of so like, and I, mean, I guess I mean, you know. They do have they do have Jeremy Corbyn today, so you know yeah. we don't even have that. So I, I mean, like he well, but he goes oh, doesn't oh. side with labor though. Oh, Engels, Engels love the Brits. I'm gonna read just I'm just gonna read something he says here, like he okay. says he says this about bring Engel. I knew I knew someone was gonna bring up the fact that Engels also it, says this kind of shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so this is what he thinks. Like oh, this is what he thinks of Anglo-American culture. So this is an extended quote, but I think it reflects poorly on the. English, the tenacity of the Yankees, who are 
even rehashing the greenback humbug, is a result of their theoretical backwardness and their Anglo-Saxon contempt for all theory. They're pushed for this by a superstitious belief in every philosophical and economic absurdity, by religious sectarianism and by idiotic economic experiments, out of which, however, certain bourgeois cliques profit. Yeah, yeah, Engels, you know, real admirer of uh, Anglo-Saxon culture. <laughs> I think, I think, uh, honestly, Thompson, he's right, I think Thompson is so right, right about the fragmentariness of capitalist culture, of which the Anglo-Americans are, are a paradigm case. Like, and as we've developed into a more diffuse, spectacular, nightmarish, you know, uh, um, <laughs> like ghostliness, something that's so hard to fight that has happened to ideology. Like ideology is so much less systematic now. It is so much more fragmentary and modular. Like it, and so it, is, it is how we describe strategy itself. Maybe that's part of the appeal of Stalinism, you know, like it's unified yes. it, for people, for like young tankies now, like it provides a simple yeah, unified it, world it, order that it provides it structure. You answer to all, all the hard questions that you will have to answer if you're a communist. It gives you really easy like answers to them. Yeah, Khrushchev lied. He just lied. Yeah, good. yeah. And um, and Thompson hates it because like it's not as I said about dialectical historical materialism. It's not an open-ended Marxism that can develop in relation to the developments of history, but rather just a closed positivistic system that sees people interacting to economic stimuli in this Pavlovian sense. I want to get back to like the third. I want to talk a little bit about like the because you mentioned like the three distinctive features of the ideology of Stalinism. I want to talk a little more about the third one, um, the, de the denial individual. of the creative agent. Yeah, so I think you can attribute this aspect because he basically complains that the sort of crude historical materialism economics of Stalin basically reduces the human subject to this very like we said it before Pavlovian agent who responds to like basically very crude stimuli right so it basically reduces like the complexity of humanity to like this almost a kind of base material unit and but i think that's maybe a broader problem that runs throughout stalinism in general and it partly stems from the way the soviet union was managed on and it goes down to their epistemology too because they greatly underestimate the complexity of the sub like the subject of human society right that's why they thought that they could basically plan and continent-spanning countries, economy right. on spreadsheets, right? That's why, you know, they thought that they could develop a science of history that could literally fucking predict the future and sort of re reduce the functions of human history to, like, this kind of Newtonian physics. So I think, it's, I, think, I, think, I think the problem in terms of the denial of the creative agency of human labor runs deeper, like, even deeper than he totally gets at here in this essay. I mean, it's it's not just that. That's like a fe that's like a surface feature yeah. of like a deeper ideological problem. Well, he basically says that his economic or automatism basically it can't work because humans aren't guaranteed to react to things all in the same way. They're structured by their culture and their ideology and how they react to things, and so you can't ever have a science that's exactly the same as physics for history because humans do have this level of subjectivity that you know electrons don't you know right yeah what he's and i thought that was an interesting point because I, he he still says that you know we should make marxism as scientific and rigorous as possible but at the same time we can never you know act like it's 
can be simply reduced to a set of equations that can predict the future or predict future events based on in data inputs. I mean, I guess you could say it should be like that, but yeah, I mean, ideally it would be, but like how we don't we don't you know they they didn't even have like the the computational tools to manage you know, sending bread around fucking Russia. You know well, what I mean? Like, yeah, well, well, the thing is, like, let's say, you know, we tried to make like a set of equations that will determine how long it will take to get to communism. You remember like in the Vietnam war when they had like this big room of computers right. to calculate when the war was going to, you know, end based on all their firepower and all their logistics. And in the end it comes out, but they had already won the war a few years ago. Like it's, right. it's, it's that kind of um, ideology where you think all aspects of human life can be reduced to a mathematical equation. And so therefore you could basically like mathematically predict history right. where I feel, reality I feel like... is the, the, the willingness of the Viet Cong to, to resist right. and, and to fight back and their belief in independence and their general way of in tactics and strategies of fighting were able to overcome, you know, this. Right. Well, I feel like you actually could do that, but you would need an intelligence that was beyond human. Yeah, that's the thing that's going on here is the um, it's the assumption of omniscience, right? It's the yeah. it's actually I actually think you know yeah maybe some supercomputer could do, some supercomputer might be able to do that. Whatever, I I don't know, right? But I know that they couldn't do that. Like they they couldn't plan the economy I, again with the abacus and like oh fuck we gotta send all these sausages across the continent oh okay we need uh, where's all this corn go who t who's got the corn I thought you were gonna do the corn no nah, shit yeah. okay okay I'll, I'll do it okay I'm gonna circle places you put the corn like yeah. I just oh, what did that look like um. <laughs> What I what I wanted to say. I mean, I can that, I can go on. I can talk about it if you want. Like, yeah, but what I cool. what I really it's, wanted to that's, say. That's almost is, like a topic for another episode, though. What I really want to say is that it's like the overall bundle of tendencies that he's critiquing are common to not just Stalinism, but also like as you were saying, Donald uh, Althusser and anti-humanism. Um, but I would also say like the, just the bureaucratic class interest in any society. And when he is saying that, you know, we are seeing the emergence of a new society and painfully, of course, he believes it's socialism. And we know that this new society is, is certainly not that later he would come to call it, uh, I think, eliminationism. Um, like this, uh, there is I mean, this bureaucratic kind of class interest ideology that pops up that has these I mean, common, I think... has these common features, and that's what his attack is on. And there is something like I really admire his ability to split the difference between looking at the objective world in terms of science, but also like maintaining class interestedness and not putting that down. See, I think something can be socialist and you can still reject it, essentially, because there was all kinds of socialisms that existed in Marx's time that he completely rejected, you know, and thought that were basically degenerate currents. I'm, I'm not talking about like basically degenerate research programs. I'm, I'm not just so talking I think, about, I think one I'm not just talking about socialism. actually existing socialism. I'm talking about like Britain. He thought Britain was becoming socialism. He thought the world oh, was yeah, going to yeah. be socialist. Right. Well, yeah, that was, you know, that was kind of the, the hope of the time. There really was this hope 
that that was the actual direction that the world was going and yeah, because of its increasing civilization of society and fear from like the shrimpters of the world yeah so one but, thing uh, that's important to point out too is that this is kind of also framed around his concerns about the atom bomb um so it's you know right. i think he is it's something that you know there's a great deal of anxiety surrounding that so I think it's pretty clear that he wasn't familiar with the immortal science of Posadas and how, you know, a lot of this stuff is just not to be worried about, you know? Yeah, it really Adam smooths Bob over the... Be our it smooths yeah, over that's the, the that's, dialectical contradictions. That's the Trotskyist Mao axis of the atom bomb. I was, no, uh, yeah, anyway. Um, well, he was involved in the anti-nuclear movement, actually, so, yeah. you know, it's something he cared about. Yeah, there's a great uh, new left kind of slogan. I, f- I think it, I forget where it's really from, but you know, um, so drop the workers bomb on high beneath its cloud will surely die. For though it blows us all to hell, it kills the ruling class as well. <laughs> yeah, that's a that was a classic Trotskyist um, thing. Got to auto tune uh, that, throw some bass on it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you'll have to edit this one then. Um, yeah, I mean. It's interesting too because the atom bomb is still like a thing, you know what I mean? Like it Yeah. Like it's, yeah. It's interesting. There's it is like inter- this kind whole, of interesting whole how like communism said no, the atom bomb is gone, but no. I mean, it's interesting yeah. how how, you know, like That's right. The kind of the kind of logic of like capitalist game theory has kind of succeeded thus far, you know, yeah. in terms of keeping the atom bomb uh under wraps. Well, I think it's because capitalist game theory is partially correct in the way that capitalism instrumentalizes people's actions and makes them act. And so game theory is a reflection of capitalist logic and people are going to internalize capitalist logic, though if in, an, in a contradictory way, that still allows for you know consciousness to change. But still, people are going to act in a way that's socialized by capital. And I think that's one thing that Thomas is also trying to get at here, is that people are socialized by capitalism to act in a certain way and will respond to economic conditions. But there's other factors that are mediating this response. Oh, man, I don't want to puppet the dead or nothing, but Marx would have loved game theory. He loved political economy because it was like the bourgeois self-conception, you know? Mm. And man, can you... Yeah, he he can definitely you would have studied get, that stuff. Get the and essence of the bourgeois worldview better than instrumental reason just eating everything in math yeah. like if they've literally made it into a branch of mathematics like uh, some like cold war like you know um, like crazy ass rand corporation like put this together literally with a dude that was you know a paranoid schizophrenic like designing yeah. this like well it's yeah. so crazy it's too because you know the Americans, and you know, there's this positivism of Stalinist historical materialism, and in the process of the Cold War, the U.S. you know intellectual bureaucracy basically created its own version of this kind of positivistic social science in order to combat the Soviet Union. Yeah, like that, literally everything we did in that period, period, everything we did in that period was just to try and show that our dick was bigger than the USSR. You know, space yeah. program uh welfare like it, that's literally all that shit it's amazing like racial you know rights was also part of it yeah there was international pressure i mean abstract expressionism 
<clears throat> yeah, yeah there was, was there was so was much weirdly uh, funded by the CIA. Yeah, there is just so much of the dynamism of capitalism in that period of time was funded by its competition, was fueled basically by its competition with the Soviet Union. Now that is dialectical. I, I feel oh, dialectic yeah. coursing through me. <laughs> that is, that is, you know, I think that's become kind of an accepted view in a lot of cases. Yeah, because look where we're at now, you know. Yeah, versus kind of idea. It even like you'll hear like boomer dads being like, "Yeah, you know, at least they don't have to worry about a you know nuclear war anymore." But uh, you know, back in the day, the Soviet Union in America, when we had someone to compete against, made us try yeah. to do better, and yeah. that was good. Even if the Soviet Union was bad, we still tried to do better, and that's yeah. what was made. You know, it's it's really funny. Actually. Rocky Rocky had somebody to fight. You know, right. Look at uh, look at Rocky Five. There's the there's the that movie sucked at. There's nobody for him to fight. <laughs> well, I mean, North North Korea just doesn't really make a convincing enemy as no. an, an opponent to the axis of imperialism. No, it was that, that Red Dawn actually did the Red Dawn remake where they have North Korea invade the United States. You, yeah, and exactly. The reason, the reason right. that happened is because it was actually China, but a Chinese um, in, investment like kind of got the film going and when the investors realized what the film was about they're like you have to change this you can't have this be china they should have made it they, honestly they should have just done a remake of canadian bacon and made it about canada <laughs> and the united states the thing is is what's interesting about thompson is that i feel like a lot of his arguments unfortunately could be easily appropriated by the bourgeoisie as a kind of and, and be used the kind of you know, convince Marxists to actually support, you know, the West and the Cold War as, you know, in, in thinking that it won't be this neoliberal, like, looting, like we saw, but instead it will be, like, a kinder social democratic, like, version of, you know, I can kind of see how, you know, in, in a way, a lot of these, you know, very well-intentioned critiques of the Soviet Union by the left could easily be, you know, manipulated essentially by right-wing intellectuals and that did happen in a lot of cases unfortunately well yeah i mean he literally gets to a point where he's like you know what english trade unionism is not so bad compared to the gulag you know not so bad <laughs> yeah um, i mean is i got he, is he wrong i mean no he's not wrong obviously english trade unionism is more pleasant than the gulag but i mean one also has to look at the you know the colonial labor camps that england was running all throughout the world against you know oh yeah no question. you know so i think that you know one can't look at the gulag without also looking at the entire yeah like the know, famines in india and, you know, just there's all kinds of things that imperialism and colonialism have done uh, concentration camps in india exceed what stalinism did yeah that, and, that british that the brits were responsible for so no you you have a point comparing you know the best of british working conditions to you know the gulag is not a fair comparison yeah exactly and i think his point there is just i think because in the end it still seems like he comes down on the socialist block in the terms of like who he supports in the cold war he doesn't necessarily say, you know, he I think I don't I don't think he's trying to say that we need to come down on the support of, you know, Western imperialism and their wonderful labor governments against, you know, the Soviet bloc. He does I mean, seem he does seem fairly like optimistic about like the future 
of the English working class. Like, I, I wonder, I, I really don't feel like well, he sees, he doesn't see the trap of like existing within capitalism, you know, for an extended period of time uh, during like a boom period. Of, you know what I mean? Like, cause I, I definitely get his, in terms of his account of, cause there's a brief part where he's talking about, you know, uh, but the British capitalist class cannot do it as it likes. However, cunning, it has not got much left to give away except the essential economic and political seats of its power. The working people of Britain could end capitalism tomorrow if they summoned the, up the courage and made up their minds to do it. If they have lost the will, it is not just because there is full employment. It is also because over 30 years, their hopes and the hopes of many professional classes uh, in Russia have kept falling through. Um, but I mean, so I don't know if he really sees neoliberalism coming. <laughs> Oh, yeah, he's like, but a lot of people nah. thought this way. A lot of people thought that both the West and the East, basically, the Eastern Bloc and the Western social democracies were tending towards the same style of planned capitalism, which is very, you know, obviously that didn't happen. The opposite happened. And we had a resurgence of the anarchy of the market. I think I don't I don't think Thompson is entirely wrong in his optimism about the British workers movement because let's look at you know the 19 the 1970s did see a serious wave of class struggle and and the 1980s you know you had the great miner strike and in a lot of ways you know it, 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 it even if the British you know working class never created socialism there still was a very strong tradition of socialism that existed and even if it was ideologically confused you know you did have a real organic you know politicized working class movement that still existed and so i think thompson can't help but you know and because thompson you know he was in the communist party and the communist party had taken up a very conciliatory attitude towards labor and working hand in hand towards labor so this is also kind of part of the, the political traditions that he was raised in you know the whole era of the popular front and the whole era of you know the um, partisan movement against world war ii and world war ii and you know the aftermath all that stuff was you know there's a uh you know joke that basically like the high the, that trade union were like leaders would tell workers that their higher wages were actually thanks to uncle joe because his tanks you know on the other side of europe were um scaring the hell out of the capitalists and making them pay up <laughs> so there was this sense in which there you know the Communist Party did, you know, try to gain influence within this kind of social democratic yeah. um, um, compromise that existed. So I think that E.P. Thompson probably has a more optimistic view of labor than we would have today for obvious reasons. Yeah, I just had to find a few things like to, that annoyed me. It was more it's more a question of tone than anything else. Because, I mean, there were, yeah, there are obviously virtues to the English working class movement, but I don't know. It's... Uh, the, well, let's say he, like he, he seems a little oblivious. I mean, he doesn't go into in do, too in depth to it, but I I get the sense that like he, there's some blind spots there in terms of you know not being able to see what's close. Uh, uh, and, oh well, not only that. I mean, he's like he's kind of just I don't want to say objectively wrong, but like just in in terms of overall like the British working class, like and you know the ang anglophone like working class movements in general. Uh, especially ones that have like early introduction of uh you know universal man suffrage right like 
that so you don't have the ability for the socialist movement to fight for universal suffrage and storm the ballot box like it's kind of amazing that labor is what it is but you know for a lot of marxist history historiographers and you know comparative sociologists or whatever you know the english are you know classically constantly reformist right and if you're doing that like oh higher levels of consciousness thing like yeah that's a, you know they're pretty you know advanced in forces and relations of production but they don't have the highest class consciousness they're oh um, yeah yeah that's in nonsense. europe in post-war I mean, europe all, all in france all and in italy you know <laughs> well yeah and he, 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 and he turns his nose up too he turns his nose up at like ideas of like a sort of mass like violent revolt or whatever but it's like honestly that's more realistic than you know the idea that you know you're gonna vote in enough labor governments to piecemeal yeah but let's socialism. let's play devil's advocate because and i don't agree with it, it's obviously we're kind of proven wrong by the course of events but we'll get the labor party in 1945 Versus oh, yeah, the Labour yeah. Party when it was founded, it was way more radical. And so <clears throat> I can see this idea that the socialists are going to take over labor and create a, a workers' republic in England. Is you know I can see I can almost see why he'd buy into this idea. Just I mean he was wrong, but he was trying to be optimistic and take a wager, essentially. Right. And that's what happens when you when you yeah. take wagers. If you want to say something politically interesting, you have to take a wager. But at the same time, you might be wrong, and so it's always, you know. <laughs> I guess yeah. that, yeah, that and the other thing, I guess, that annoyed me. I've harped on this a little bit earlier. Is kind of like the moralism here, which I don't know. It's a little, it's a little suspect to me because it seems to me like, you know, there's limits to the extent that you know morality. And I'm sure I, I think he'd probably acknowledge this too. That maybe he's bending the stick too far in the other direction. There's an extent to which morality can be, you can really even judge when you reach like a certain level politically. You know, like the like. In a revolution, you're overturning all of society, and that's a act of force. So, you know, you're already violating the NAP. So, I mean, <laughs> yeah, I mean, but I think uh, I think he he has like a you know more or less Marxist ethics, which I would caution against. Marxism is more concerned with the grand sweep of history, and specifically those moments where everyday ethics are suspended, and you know classes go into open conflict right it's not but his point is that is that it's not you know because the whole thing with stalin was so weird like because there's the famous thing about how you know a thing like stalin would applaud as well and he wasn't applauding himself he was applauding the process of history right and he touches on this a little bit too that this sort of absurdity that this party which is this this unit which is the russian government you know the soviet republic government was so dominated by one personality and yet it only proclaimed itself an almost impersonal instrument of the process of history right yeah um and that that you know you can see how that very claim of impersonality serves to reinforce like an even deeper like a sense of authority yeah um, and i just want to uh, kind of asterisk what i was saying before you know again i'm kind of a partisan of like virtue ethics that lean in the marxist direction but I, I just think that marxism can't be like a guide for everyday life in terms of how to behave with people like I, the only thing i could maybe say is that like you know you like bend the the class morality and like the morality towards the oppressed but i mean a lot of times in i don't know 
depending on where you live, like that's already the anthem and everybody wants to be seen doing that on Instagram. And that maybe that's not where I am right now, but you know, I'm aware that different places have different relationships to this. Yeah. I mean, morality, it does have, it's not relative, but it does have, you know, historic, it is a product of specific concrete historical instances. And so I have to be looked at in that term as well as, in, ter- in terms of general principles of morality that people have come to accept. Because I think that Thompson does, he believes in what's called the moral economy, which is that basically any right, right. community of people, any society basically develops a sense of what is right and what's wrong. And often because the society is contradictory, there always will be, you know, parts of this moral economy that are trampled on that people right. will, that will inspire people to react and fight back. He's and sort so, of doing the like the naive humanist thing, though. Like this is the thing that kind of bugs me about him is that, in that, like, I love yeah. that his humanism is is complex in terms of you know recognizing you know ideas, but not totally abandoning economic determinism. Like really cutting into where Stalin gets it wrong, like in specific, because I think. You know, he's not really abandoning like an overall framework, although he does do- he does not like base and superstructure as a metaphor. Um, I think yeah. that's, 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 you know, he's, that's, he's that's actually on that specific topic. He's very interesting. Yeah. He talks about um, how the base needs to be seen more as the entire social material reproduction of society. And it's more of a field of influence that determines how people act rather than just something that automatically produces like subjects he's he's very it's not just just like stock market floors and piles of machinery yeah yeah he 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 really understands that the base and the superstructure are basically real humans doing real things in the real world and that they just act collectively in certain aggregate ways that produces you know transformative emergent effects on society he d- and he does capture another like amu- like absurdity of, of the soviet union in that they really like stalin really denigrates the importance of the superstructure but then immediately kind of turns around and like hyper manages like the superstructural apparatus in the soviet right. union yeah well and he says this is because in a way they can't account for why the superstructure isn't meeting the base and so they have to create this idea that there's a conspiracy and therefore <laughs> some outside contaminating. And so therefore it's the Trotskyite, Bukharanite, fascist record block. And that's what's causing industry to fuck up in this sector. And this guy who's working there, he had a past of being sympathetic to Bukharan, so he's guilty. And so, I mean, there is a part where he talks about the logic of the show trials and just is really dead on about it. Yeah, the, the, there's some very salient points there. Yeah, he's he's he, he has a lot of very salient critiques of Stalinism, and I kind of forgive his naive humanism. Yeah, it yeah. contains something that is just missing in Marxism so much. It's this idea to have the most cold structural analysis possible and be a moral nihilist. And yeah, like you the, have no real yeah. room for human agency in your analysis. That's considered like the most true Marxist analysis. Yeah, exactly. Like at the end of the day, you have to wonder like who are we building socialism for? Because if you have like Stalin's and view, why are of, people going to build it? 
yeah if, if you have stalin's view of humanity like i don't want to give socialism to like the humanity that stalin's building it for you know yeah i don't want to just like be an appendage of developing the productive forces yeah because you, you build it all like, you we want to make the productive communism. forces then what yeah. what i was going to say is like in a way ep thompson is the opposite of stalin because E.P. Thompson sees humanity as making the productive forces something that serve their interests and our creative potential for humans, whereas Stalin sees humans as basically serving the need of to, to develop the productive forces, which will inherently create a more progressive society. And any kind of oppressive aspect of that society is just like a distortion created by counter-revolutionary wreckers. <laughs> Pretty much. Although at some at some yeah. point I remember I remember thinking while reading this that it did sort of make me think of Mao because Mao ha also had a very sanguine mm. view of the creative capacity of the masses and yeah that is yeah, true that is true and I mean his, he uh, he had some rather interesting and novel attempts to politically a uh, activate that you know Jake yeah. you're right <laughs> well um. Thompson mentions Mao China actually as an example of a more ethical socialism at one point. Right? <laughs> yeah. 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 And this was, you know, this was popular in the new left. And so I can see, you know, I can see the problem is most Maoists are Althusserians and anti-humanists and their own, they do try to have the most amoral structuralist analysis, but I don't really know if that was true for the new left per se, because MLM, like the Maoism that we're all familiar with today, like the Red Guards Austin Maoism that was invented by the Shining Path. And so most people who call themselves Maoists or MLMs are really Shining Pathists. Really? Yeah. Is, that the, is that the majority of Maoists today? Yes. Well, yes. In, the, in, in America, anyway. Yeah. Yeah, in America. Because, like, in China, in Canada, there's no way that's the case. Oh, yeah. In China, it's probably more like the New Left style Maoists. Because there are, like, you know, there's, like, a kind of – it's not, like, secret. But, you know, they have I to mean, pipe down. There's, like, there's, a Maoist faction of the party. I don't know. I can understand why someone would have hope that a new revolution in China could reinvigorate energy into the socialist movement and help, you know, show a new way for people. I think that, it, you know, it was a possibility that didn't happen because Mao was too loyal to Stalinist orthodoxy himself and didn't break from it enough. And I don't think that the fact that it was a third world revolution necessarily doomed it to have, like, an entirely negative impact on society because well and and the other parallel here too is like mao you know he was interested in dialectics and he was interested in breaking out of like the more mechanistic yeah he talks about them and his critique of stalin's economic problems the ussr he says the problem here is you know we hear a lot of talking about the base but there's no talking about the superstructure Wow. So that that you know, I, I feel like yeah, the reaction to this you know in this kind of direction was happening in more places than just England at the time. Yeah, and I mean, I think that this is almost a spirit that animates the new left in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. Is and I you know the new left gets a lot of shit, but the point is they were trying to create a humanistic socialism, a socialism with a new face. I think in the, in, in the more positive elements. I think when you start going into Althusserianism and that, so that's when it starts getting like into like crazy, like, you know, Stalinist, like dogmatism and Maoism. But there was a side of the new left that really did want 
to make a new and better socialism that was still a Marxist at its core. I mean, when I think of all the bad things about the left, this like kind of sums up a lot of it. Like, so I try to articulate sometimes why I laugh at the post left, you know, because they like embody all the worst parts of the left subculture without like offering the redemptive worldview that the left can have. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. You know, can have, I mean, redemptive God, you know, I'm not talking about the contemporary left. Of course, I'm talking about the Marxist, you know, emancipation kind of worldview. (laughs) Well, yeah, I mean, I think, but even this, this desire for emancipation and redemption, like even if in the current left is completely distorted and it's, you know, the current left has become in a lot of ways, just individualistic, therapeutic and narcissistic. There still is this desire for people to, you know, create a better world and redempt the past oppressions that their ancestors have gone through, and you know, and make a better world for the world for their children. And I think that impulse still exists in people. It's just that the left hasn't is so alien. To, the left as it exists today has become so alien to it. And I think that's kind of what Thompson is saying here with Stalinism is that this ideology and this bureaucracy has become completely alien to the actual impulse of humans to be more free. So we're past an hour. Is there anything else you wanted to cover about this? Any uh, big critiques? Just that, you know, the everyday workers, a lot of them love Mr. Mustache. Like, it, he was a folk hero to a lot yeah, of people. He, he, he doesn't explain the buy-in to Stalinism. Inside and outside the Soviet Union. And I think this is the one thing I wanted to touch on was that he never actually, I don't know if he ever actually visited the Soviet Union and lived there for an extended period of time because most of his knowledge of the Soviet Union came from like party conferences that were, I think he, I don't, I don't know if he actually had experience real life there and had like a real full understanding of his political economy and the social and cultural dynamics and if he had, this would have been way more fascinating. I don't think he would have changed his mind and been like, oh, the Soviet Union actually is totally humanist and great, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> no, no, I no, still, no, I, no. I just think he would have had a more interesting critique. Well, I think I think he's still trying Soviet- to like speak for the, you know, the, the people being crushed by the, the powers that be. You know, that, that's yeah, like who he's speaking towards. The that's way he who looks he wants at it, to represent. Yeah, he sees, you know, a society made of ordinary people and then kind of this cast of bureaucrats that's holding them back from making the society that could truly exist. And he sees revolts in Hungary as a kind of sign show of this dynamic where people are struggling not just, you know, are struggling for, you know, human dignity and freedom in ways that we haven't seen before. And in a way, like... Like I said before, you can see how this could almost be used to justify, you know, NATO intervention in the Eastern Bloc, you know. But at the same time, like, it is true that people revolting in Hungary were revolting for in Czechoslovakia, which is later on. But they were fighting for socialism with a human face. And even if that kind of idea became corrupted into neoliberalism over time... I still think that it had a real impetus behind it and that people really did want to recreate their worlds in the Eastern Bloc and to, you know, really fulfill the Marxist promise that 
their society was supposed to be premised on. So, so let me ask a tough question here. All right, we're all on board. Tanks into Hungary. It's fucked up. So you're saying the hung- Hungarian communists asked for help from NATO? Yeah. Would you? Um, so no, would, no, no, no. The, uh, hung- hung- the Hungarian revolutionaries who were a minority, like were, or I don't even know if a minority, but like the leaders of the Hungarian, like Soviet Republic. Like, right, right. Communist is too broad a word for this context. Like the dissident communists were a, okay. a faction of the Communist Party, and the rebel groups that formed the fight the Soviet right. tanks did ask for help from NATO and so, the U.S. for intervention. So what do you make of that political conundrum? You know, sometimes I get crabby with you about having stakes in history, but, you know, like, I think what, you know, what you say in response, <laughs> what what you say in response often is that, you know, this helps it's one orient. Stuff. This helps one orient, you know, for potential rhyming incidents in the future. Yes, exactly. And so, exactly. so what coming to see? What do, what do you, well? I mean, yeah, I understand this, but like, what do you see? Like, like you know, I don't. I know. I still don't have stakes. Like, it's important. I think it's important. Like, you know, in a way, we're taking on some history that has nothing to do with us far across the world. Like. Um, but anyway, what I want to say is, talking about are, Hungary are you pro NATO intervention? Are you pro NATO intervention? Hell no. If, if, Hell NATO, no. if NATO went in there and like, oh, don't worry, comrades, we'll, we'll defend you from Stalin. I mean, Khrushchev, I mean, whatever he is from Soviet tyranny and the evil empire, they would have looks the same to me. Well, yeah, it would have destroyed any kind of socialist content that that revolt had. And, it would have triggered World War Three. Like, well, I mean, it, it, it would have triggered World War Three. That, all right, that's a good point. That's but, why they didn't intervene was because the result they realized that it would trigger like a world war. And so I think that you know the rebels actually were incredibly irresponsible in calling for NATO intervention. I, I, I think I think that's the easy way out. I think that's easy way out. Because just right, because they were true. irresponsible doesn't mean that they weren't. They didn't have a morally dignified cause, and it, it doesn't mean that the Soviet tanks should have crushed them. They should have just let Hungary do what it wanted to do. Like, let's say, let's say, we like this goes on and it does not cause World War Three, right? Then what? Like, because you're right, that's an objective truth. But I want to kind of like get to a more fundamental set um, of intuitions here. Look at like, what happened in Poland with solidarity. But that's basically a mass workers movement that came out of like real trade unions and stuff, real mass workers movement. But then NATO intervened and put, you know, Jeffrey Sachs and a bunch of people obsessed with Ayn Rand in charge of their economic policies and just completely looted the Eastern Bloc. And so I think, you know, it's that's just the reality of it is that if. No. If you did actually have like a restoration of capitalism by NATO and Hungary, it would not have been like a good kind of social democratic like you place where people still kept all their nice wealth like you so, know, all, all their nice benefits and health stuff, you know. It would have been, you know, like we saw like what would actually happen when the Soviet Union collapsed. I'm gonna I'm gonna be real here. I've when it comes to the Hungarian situation I've only read like a pamphlet and maybe like the Wikipedia entry. Like that was like three years ago. And I haven't read much on this. 
So, but let me ask. It's romanticized by the ultra left. Yeah, but so let me ask, could it have been possible maybe for, I mean, if you had like a, a more like healthy workers state, even if it was a little degenerated in Moscow, could they have maybe like applauded this the spontaneous initiative of like the working class while still like basically keeping NATO troops out of out of Hungary? Could that I would mean, that have been just a, a at, that point, at that point though the Stalinist bureaucracy had become so congealed and entrenched in power? But let's yeah. say that somehow like Khrushchev actually did like fix everything. Then yeah, perhaps like. But at the same time, I still think that how far they could have gone into socialism is limited by how much right. of the world is was was limited, you know, and also just the, the fact of imperialist encirclement and right. threat of nuclear destruction. So, so like, what if you know Beria succeeded Stalin, and he was trying to show how, like, you know, how not Stalin he was, and he didn't show in the ta- he didn't send in the tanks, right? Like. <laughs> Beria wanted to restore capitalism. He wanted to make. Wow. That's my understanding is that Beria like wanted to go like way way further to the right than Khrushchev even, and basically just make it a democratic republic and restore private property. So I think that probably would have been a huge counter revolution as well because yeah. I don't think the authoritarian Stalinist like all the nasty authoritarian aspects of the state would have gone away it just would have become a capitalist state yeah and that's what we see in Russia today like the the, the restoration of capitalism via imperialism did not open up an opportunity for a new better form of socialism and that's it what opened, drives me it, so fucking crazy up about all these liberal looting. All these liberal takes about how, uh, oh, it's Trump's Trump's collaborating with communists and shit like that. Like, no, like this person you you're all and like the people who see Putin, uh, Putin's under their bed, Putin's right. behind everything. You know, it's like Putin is a capitalist head of a capitalist nation state, and this is the result of like the collapse of communism. You fucking morons. And. <laughs> Yeah, they can't even see that. They still, they still, they still act like it's communist. Well, they're Uh, Russian. Communism is a national character, Jake. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Observe, observe the Russian skull. You see, right? Yeah, you can see the Bolshevik lobe. (laughs) Well, actually, in the movie "Come and See," there's that part when um the Nazis murder some commun or um or no, the communists are about to murder some Nazis. The Nazis are like, communism breeds amongst lower races like you. Like, (laughs) it was so ridiculous. But that's, you know, that's probably what these people believe. They probably actually do think that, like, Russia is, like, Asiatic and barbarous and therefore, (laughs) like, more gangster. I mean, that's a constant, like, theme in, like, you know, Western, like, you know, imperial, like, doctrine, though, is just kind of, like, not really accepting Russia as part of Europe and trying to promote this idea that they're more Asiatic and they're really not European. Yeah, it's total horseshit. This is the uh, this, is, of- this is this is this is the uh, Duganist hour, the eagle and the bear. Uh, we will. <laughs> Hail Eurasia. We're, we're gonna take a we're gonna take a quick break from our sponsors at RT. Uh, yeah. Yes, Nine eleven faked by Jews. <laughs> America, worse than North Korea. I mean, it goes back all the way to um, the uh, right-wing social terms. democrats opposing Bolshevism and 
At the 1920 Howe Conference, Zinoviev of the Comintern debated Martov of you know the you know the Mensheviks and the independents and the second hey, international. No, no, Martov is a racist piece of shit. Uh, <laughs> like that's so half sad. the time he's just like mocking like Zinoviev for like trying to like turn like third world people into revolutionaries. Oh wow! And, uh, like, so so you're saying that Martov and like barbaric. Martov and Zinoviev debated, and Zinoviev looks way better than Martov. Oh yeah, I'd say he does. Wow, wow, wow. Okay. Communists are like booing. Communists in the audience are booing Martov throughout the debate. <laughs> like it's awesome. Yeah. All right. Well, I wasn't aware of. You should Mar- read it. It's um, terrible views on this. That's Zinoviev and Martov head to head and how it's um has an essay by Lars Lee. It's put out by the Communist Party, Great Britain. But the How Conference 1920 was when the KPD and the USPD united into the unit. The VKPD, the Unified KPD, and that was a huge moment in you know the history of Marxist parties because it showed you know the possibility for a merger like this to happen. That's it for this week. If you'd like to get a hold of us, you can email us at swampsidechats at gmail.com. If you'd like to support the show, you can give us a like on Facebook. Check out our Twitter page, leave us a good review on iTunes, or if you'd like to support us financially, you can send us some money through PayPal at swampsidechats at gmail.com, or you can subscribe to our Patreon. So until next time, keep your boots clean, your feet out of the swamp, and your head in the revolutionary clouds of tomorrow.